0: Um, it's that verse, verse nine that I, that I really wanted to bring out. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And as we do these questions and answers, I mean, that's the point. We want to grow in knowledge about specific topics and we want to discern with our, with our hearts and our minds in the scriptures of what it is that we're talking about. Um, and it's with that though, we have the all encompassing love. So that even if, let's say, Mike and I, who are generally answering the questions, get something wrong, we still love each other, and we still love you guys, and we still love each other all together. So it's just that reminder as we continue forward. Now, Mike, how about we go ahead and get those questions? I believe... Betsy, did you put them in there? Great. Yeah, they're all there. And we'll... Yeah, just, you'll just bring them back. Yeah. Now, this time, I have no idea about half of these. Last time, I knew. <laughs> so this will be interesting, for sure. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, Go ahead. In, in you. no particular order. Go ahead.
1: What instrument would you learn to play? That's a fun one.
0: <laughs> play that. Piano. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> That's all I got. That's a fun question, though. Why not? Get to know us. Um, yeah, I, I've been a Michael W. Smith fanboy forever, so piano is something that I would love to learn to play eventually. I don't know about you, Mike. If you <laughs> well, musical
1: <laughs> what instrument would I learn to play? I don't even know. <laughs> huh. there are many versions of the Bible. Talk about the value of each version and why you use a certain version.
0: Ooh. That's a good question. Um, I'm going
1: deeper.
0: <laughs> 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 All right. Um, when it comes to different versions of the Bible, you want to answer one of two questions Is it being more um, literal in translation or is it being more of a paraphrase? Uh, the message. For example, that's a paraphrase. It's, um, I forget exactly who wrote the message. But um, it, it's not word for word, literal, with the Greek or with the Hebrew. And if you read it, you can kind of tell. Um, he's just putting out, like instead of the gospel, he puts the message. Um, and that's not the right word that you should put in there, but that's just how he does it. Now, I don't have anything against that per se. Um, I wouldn't use that kind of a translation for study. I wouldn't really use it for church. Um, that's why I use the ESV or the NASB, what Mike uses. Right. Those two are the probably, when it comes to the English language, the most literal translations that we have. The NASB, New American Standard Version, and the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's why I use the ESV. Now, the King James, classic, beautifully written. I mean, everyone knows that it's a work of art. It really is, especially for what it provides. But it is also older. Um, and so it's for... It's okay for had to have other translations that have come along that's easier for our vernacular than it is, that's our, our way of talk, than, than, let's say, the King James. But I love the King James. I grew up on the King James. I think it's beautiful. The prophetic visions in Daniel and Revelation, you can't beat the King James version. Um, so, yeah, that's what I would say is in regard to that. Is I tend to go with the more literal translations. NIV, um, that's kind of in between. When it comes to that, they've kind of done a few things since 2010 that I haven't agreed with in that translation. Um, when it comes to gender neutrality and things like that, they've taken out some of that. Um, so instead of saying he, when it says he, it'll say they or things like that, um, which which can lead to certain theological problems in my mind. So that's that's kind of the gist of it.
1: Yeah, I think... You know. <laughs> no, uh,
0: just... Uh yeah, know, to, to
1: get as close as possible to an American equivalent translation from the Greek um, is, yeah that's that's why I'm partial to my translation. Um, not that I'm not partial. I mean, certainly the King James is the standard bearer, I guess. And I don't know if part of the question related to, is it... Um, is it a flaw to not use the King James, you know, within a a worship service? Just because of the historical
0: perspective that it... Let me me add to that. I'm going to add to that. Um, The reason why, you know, again, you can use the King James, there are certainly those who are only King James only, so to speak. Um, You have to, yeah. Now, the reason why I also don't think that's a good idea is because in the 1940s, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were written in the first century. Before that, the only translation of, let's say, the Hebrew um, Old Testament in particular was actually from 600 years after that because of a fire that destroyed them all. So you've got 600 years between even the New Testament time, and so now you've got because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you have it going back all the way to the time of Jesus. And there's two good things about that. The first is that, generally speaking, they're consistent. <laughs> that's a good thing. For 600 years, that means that they were accurate in copying it over and over and over again. And that's something that the scriptures actually hold very well. There's a 99% overall agreement in the scriptures for example and it's it's really impressive from going from one translation to the next but it's because of that though you still have certain little tidbits that you get um, when you go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that so that's one of the reasons why I would say the newer translations have a little bit more information that the King James just didn't have when it was being translated.
2: The ESV is relatively a new... Since 2001.
0: Yeah. And the NASP is from the eights, but they're they're the best when it comes to literal translation. Or literal translation. From literal, translation. yep.
1: What is your concept of hell? Is it eternal punishment or a phase where people are just burned up?
0: Actually, this is a very good discussion. Um, all right, how do I put this? historically in the christian church the eternality that is the eternal punishment is the traditional view of christians that for an eternity people would be in hell Uh, around sometime during the church fathers so you got to figure 300 ad 400 ad this idea of annihilationism is what it's called came into being and that's the belief that once people go to hell that's it they're done no more they don't they cease to exist That is actually a heresy. Um, It has been condemned as a heresy from the church for 2,000 years almost. Well, 1,500 years, I'd say. Um, And so I don't believe that that is a correct understanding. I disagree also with those who believe in um, universalism, which is that everyone will be saved, even the devil. People believe that, that he will be saved in the end. I disagree with that as well. I think the scriptures are very clear that hell is eternal, what that looks like, though, what that punishment looks like, though, I'm not 100% sure. Um, yes, there's flames, but there's also an understanding of maybe hell is just a continual going further and further away from God. And uh, having that feeling of knowing that you're wrong but refusing to admit that you're wrong, that can be a hell within itself, can it, psychologically. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, generally, though, like what kind of punishments there's going to be in hell, I, I can't say. Um, But I do know that there is punishment and I do believe that it is eternal because the sin itself that people are being judged for is that serious. The rejection of Jesus Christ. To reject Jesus Christ as the Lord of all is a very serious sin. Um, To reject God, essentially, is what you're doing. So from that reason, that is why hell is eternal because it's the eternality of that judgment for that particular sin especially. Uh, Yeah, hell is eternal.
1: Souls are eternal. Okay? All souls are eternal. I think one of the difficult things at times is within our English language, we have an unfortunate um, understanding of the word hell as compared to within the scriptures. We think of hell as one place. Now, hell, the place of fire and brimstone... That doesn't open for business until Revelation 20 after the second resurrection. So what then is the destination of eternal souls damned to hell before fire and brimstone opens for business in Revelation 20? And there we have uh, uh, the, the parable that Jesus gives of Lazarus and, uh, uh, and the rich man. Um, Where is that? I would say sheol is a word that comes to mind. That's an Old Testament Hebrew word for, or Hades. Well, Hades is the deepest abyss. I think of hell, whether I'm right or wrong or not, as compartmentalized. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But anyway, it, it is important to recognize that uh, hellfire and brimstone. Hell doesn't open for business until after the second resurrection, in Revelation twenty. So when bodies expire, what is, you know, the destination of that of that soul um, until after the second resurrection? Anybody else want to add? Anybody else want to comment or have any other discussion about?
2: Mike, right, to go along with that then, this is a question
1: I've always had. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, like, oh. You have to be recorded. Well, have to? Well,
2: you can know, it doesn't record unless you speak Well, if that. when you die, your soul, you're not sure if you, it's not in hell yet. Why then when we die, if if we're going to heaven when it says Christ, when he comes back, the dead in Christ shall rise and will be caught up in the clouds with him. They're not coming back for this body. What is he coming back for? Our soul should already be in heaven. So what is he coming back? What's going to rise up and go back with him if we're already in heaven? Do you understand what I'm saying? You go first. Nobody's (laughs) ever been able to answer that for me. Why do we have to be caught up if we're already there?
0: All right. This is part of our rapture discussion. (laughs) Mike and I have also talked about this quite extensively. Um, All right. There's, I'm going to get into philosophy, I'm sorry. Platonism. And the Platonism, the Plato taught that there's a difference between the physical and the spiritual. The spiritual is good, the physical is bad. That kind of crept its way into Christianity. The truth is, is that God created us in physical form, and it was good. When we get raised up, It's physical. We are going to be changed physically. Um, So our souls may be in heaven. But when the resurrection... (laughs) Mike's agreeing, yeah. When? But no. when When we are raised up, it is our physical bodies renewed into the immortal. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That in a blink of an eye, in a twinkling of an eye, those who are asleep will be raised up. Because their physical bodies will now be raised. Whereas once they did not, when they died, they didn't have any physical body anymore because their physical bodies died, and that makes sense in the Christian tradition. You have Adam and Eve; they were they were made with flesh, and what do we remember when we think about Adam and Eve? We remember the fact that you know they fell into death. It was not originally the goal of Adam and Eve to fall into death. What does Christ do? Brings it back into the right place where it's supposed to be. Um, And so that's what that, I believe, that's what's being talked about. When we are raised, it's a physical raising of our bodies from perishable into imperishable, the way that God had originally intended our bodies to be, physical in dimension, but imperishable, ultimately, sustained by him. Go ahead, Michael.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I agree 100%. Does that answer your question, though? Because I don't think it does.
2: Well, because he doesn't want this body. Why do? Why? I don't know. It just, it's confusing to me because our souls in heaven—we're not going to have this body. What do we? What does he, What do, What does this body have to go back up to heaven?
1: This body doesn't. We get a resurrected body, just as Christ, when he was resurrected, he had a body that could—he could eat, he could touch, he could feel, but he could walk through walls. Um, Thomas could put his hands in the, or put his fingers in in the hole in his side or in his hands. So what, um, what are we? If we're up in heaven, then what are what, what is our spirit up in heaven? What is what is what form do we take up in heaven when, we're, when we? are A resurrected body? No, you said
2: that. Or,
1: or oh. Go, until the end. So what
0: are we? up Good up luck. In heaven? <laughs> Good luck. All I gotta say about that is that. To be honest, in theology, philosophy, we've been talking about what is the soul, what is the mind, what are these things? How do we understand them? Are they, um, are they? Are we able to, like, are we able to open up a body and look at the soul? No, <laughs> we can't. So, how are we going to be when we're in heaven? What's it going to look like? I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. And that's I that's uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> like I don't know. Um, and I'm, you know, I said last week i have the right to say that (laughs) i don't know these are things that are mysteries but we do know that we do have a soul we do know that we do have a body we do know that technically both are created good we do know that good things can be used for evil we do know that the body in this physical place in this sin and darkness has been used for evil and it is going to die because that is the result of sin
1: and we do know that we will be recognizable however that looks
0: yeah. Uh, we don't know. We have a... That's all I'm gonna
1: say. <laughs> yeah, we we will be recognizable in heaven um before our resurrected bodies are resurrected. Uh, because God tells us that, you know, we'll 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 know each other. He'll know us, we'll know him. Uh David said um uh, when his child died you know, Bathsheba i uh he can't come to me, but I can go to him as far as an awareness of being able to to recognize each other, and however that takes place, we we don't know
2: I guess we'll just have to get well,
1: you'll You'll know when you get there. Yeah. Is, is there any other question or discussion about souls? Here okay, this isn't one, and is there a difference between your soul and spirit? Because we are instructed to worship God with our soul, with all the strength of our soul. Um, wait, no.
0: I'm going to say semantics and context. <laughs> um, sometimes semantics will say, okay, your spirit and your spirit is and that's Like just kind of talking about um, your inner strength, so to speak. Whereas your soul is your immortal. That is something that who you are essentially. Um, and also, but in context, the spirit can be understood as the soul too. So it's just context and semantics to me. That's all I got.
1: Sorry,
0: <laughs> Sorry about that. What
1: is our responsibility to society as Christians?
0: This one's an interesting one um, because it depends on who you ask. If you ask the Amish, it's to not be involved in society. <laughs> Um, if you ask, let's say, uh, if you ask the Mennonites, it's to be involved a little bit, but not, you know, too much. Um, honestly, I believe our responsibility to society as Christians is to be prophetic, to prophesy, to speak the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. When we proclaim the gospel, believe it or not, that's being prophetic. That is prophecy in and of itself. Um, and then it's also... To recognize that, you know, in society, societies can be redeemed. And that's something that we've forgotten, I think. We have done something very unusual in the last 50 to 100 years, which is we've kind of separated our um, personal lives from our public lives. Our... um, you know, values from the rest of society. So your personal values, you're not supposed to bring them into society because society shouldn't be following just your personal values. And I think that that's wrong because Christ redeems everything. He redeems societies. He redeems all these things. And we saw this in Rome. You know, Rome was a debauched place until the gospel came along. And then the gospel did do some wonderful things for the Romans and for the world. Um, the go- the gospel still in certain societies. When you go to certain places where um, Ecuador, where you think of the natives there who used to be cannibals, and now they're believing in the gospel and their lives have been changed dramatically and their society has changed you know, these are things that happen through the gospel. So, our responsibility to society as Christians is to be prophetic through proclamation of the gospel, but also prophetic in the recognition that that gospel will change that society for the better. Um, Christianity has done wonderful things for society. Modern education, that comes from Christianity. Pagans don't care about science, Christians do. Science itself, mathematics, when you really consider it, only makes sense in a theistic view. Why? Because numbers, they're absolute. Numbers are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. When you think about science, for example, too. Um, consider this for a second. Science. For the pagans, they viewed they viewed the natural world in its holy. So they could never touch it. They could never experiment with it, could they? Because if they did, then they'd be doing something profane in their worldview. Christianity comes along. Scientific revolution. Why? Because it's created. It's not God. It is something to created to be understood as God has made it. And because of that, you can have a scientific theory, and you can go ahead and research things, and there's a reason for doing it to begin with, because you can learn more about God. In atheism, you don't have that. In paganism, you don't have that. In Hinduism, where everything is God, you don't have that kind of a scientific understanding. So our responsibility, again, as Christians, is to just simply proclaim to be bold and to recognize and philosophize with the society around us and show that Christianity is best for society. We have to have communication with, with the society around us, essentially.
1: Yeah, I don't know if the question maybe pertain more to uh, the social justice and of you know, our responsibility as believers to the contributing to social justice issues within society.
0: Well, yeah, obviously we should. (laughs) I mean, as Christians, we definitely should be involved with social justice. We have to be the first ones to recognize that there is righteousness. Why? Because God is righteous. We have a foundation for social justice, whereas the rest of society actually, when you actually talk to them, doesn't. Um, So, yeah, we should be involved with that. However, we have to always couple it with the gospel. It is not enough for us to go out and to build homes, to go out and feed people if the gospel itself is not being also introduced. What good is it to feed someone and then let them go to hell? What good is it to build a house for somebody just so that they're going to go to hell? What's the point? But why don't we feed people and proclaim the gospel while we're doing it? Why don't we build houses and proclaim the gospel while we're doing it? And that's a critique for another day. Any other questions or comments
1: from anyone? The Bible teaches a very young earth and a seven-day creation. How does this align with the millions of years old earth taught by science? Where do dinosaurs fit in?
0: Uh... All right, I'm going to go somewhere random. Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. Um, inerrancy, as we know, believes that, okay, the scriptures are inerrant. They are the way that God has written them or given them through the prophets is how God has originally meant it. Um, however, the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy also states that you can understand, let's say, the seven days of creation in a old earth understanding. And it has to do with how you interpret the text and it has to do with how you understand the text. <sighs> I'll be, and this one, in all honesty, this one for me is kind of like um, end times. I wasn't there at the beginning of creation. <laughs> um, I was, I'm was. i not there yet at the end of time. So it's hard for me to actually say, okay, this is where I stand on it, or how do we understand it in light of this, or that philosophers have a lot of different understandings of it, obviously. Um, And so personally, you know, I can have fellowship with someone who believes in an old earth, who believes that the Bibles are inerrant, and I I can have fellowship with someone who's a young earth creationist who believes that, you know, seven days, you know, 4,000 years ago, I can have fellowship and we can love one another. It's one of those issues that is, it's not necessary for us to get 100% right now, but we can talk about it. So I just want to bring that up first. Now, what do I lean toward? I do lean toward a seven-day creation. Um... Dinosaurs, how do they fit in? Maybe it's the flood. People have argued that. Maybe it's something else. Maybe um, there's so many different views on this that it's hard for me to really go go on to it. Go ahead, Bob.
2: What
1: always irks me is is they just make the why why do the scientists who are for the most part atheists, they say, well the Bible is wrong, but not all of the all of these
0: assumptions, they come up with the millions of years. With literally, you have most most of that. You have to assume just about every component of it. Correct. And that's one of my issues with it too: is that scientists will basically use their naturalistic worldview, and because they're naturalists, they can't say that God did it, for example. And so they'll say, you know, chance, time, and matter. We're, we're taught that there's a big
1: bang. Yeah. Well, Why can't that be the
0: same as saying, God said, let there be light? Exactly. I mean, the singularity is the issue. Um, There was a point in time when something happened. And actually, the Big Bang is a good argument for creation, for God. Actually, when you really look at it philosophically, the Big Bang doesn't make sense by itself, unless there's something that caused that event to happen. And scientists who are atheists don't get that at all. And so they, they come up with different theories. If you've noticed, in the past 20 years, there's been the idea, okay, multiverse theory, where there's a bunch of universes, and so we just happen to get the one that will create life. Really? There's no evidence. <laughs> You're just making things up at this point. Why? Because they refuse to accept the argument that God exists, because they're naturalists. It's not the science. It's their worldview behind the science that are dictating their definitions, um, and so there are plenty of Christian scientists, though, who argue against them. There are plenty of Christian scientists who have a Christian worldview who say, "Listen, this only makes sense if God did it. It doesn't make sense otherwise." Um, do Joanna, do you have a question or a comment? Just a comment? Okay.
2: Yeah. Well. In, in Sunday school, we can always depend on one day is as, as a thousand years to God. I mean, and that helps little kids to realize the difference in time.
0: Well, yeah, as, and that's a very good truth. Um, and the truth is, when we're talking about an infinite God, uh, to understand exactly how he created things, he could have made... It says he formed the world, for example, in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, in Genesis. Well, if he's forming it, he can do it however he wants to, first of all, and he can make it look however old he wants to to support life. So that's why I, I'm not 100% convinced. I'm not 100% convinced that God didn't create it in seven days. I'm not 100% convinced that it's, it's all unscientific.
1: And part of the complication, too, is when, when we try to rationalize science and blend it with... Creation or creation science—you're you're, blending—you're you're blending two things that aren't blendable. I, and I got, let me share this with you. When I was uh, er, early on, I can't remember—ten years old, whatever. You know, in high school or not wasn't well, in high school, but in uh, school you get—you you see the charts of you know. Something like this, walking, and then something a little bit more upright until you get to Homo sapien as far as the evolution of man, the, the evolution, science of evolution. Well, then I got to think. One of the things I puzzled and puzzled and puzzled is, okay, here's a man, and God created man in his own image. Does that mean that God looks like a monkey? Yeah, that's sure. The The illustration of that is the two... The two courses are not compatible. You can't blend them together or try to make them blend together. Not in my view.
0: And that's the issue that you have when it comes to science in particular when it is being defined by a specific worldview. Again, Mike's right. That understanding doesn't make sense with the Christian worldview, but that understanding itself, they can't prove it. There's no evidence at all for the missing link. The missing link isn't just from monkeys or apes to man or Neanderthals to man. The missing link is from any species to any other species. There's no evidence of a fish becoming a mammal. There's no evidence of that ever happening. We don't have anything. We have completed forms of these animals only. So, again, there's a lot of discussion about this, a lot of debate, and... It's just one of those things that we're going to be contending with forever, <laughs> probably. As long as naturalism exists, it's going to be, continue to be debated. My, my last
1: comment about this, where do dinosaurs fit in? Uh, Job has mention of two beasts, one called Le- Leviathan and one called Behemoth, or at least in my American Standard translation, uh, that could very well be construed potentially as being dinosaurs. Otherwise... Uh, the the fossil record is clear that yeah there were big something's um, and now one of the things too is uh, historically dinosaurs have been portrayed as all you know reptiles smooth skin, and so forth I don't know when I last read or heard this but now there's a potential controversy that maybe they all had f- feathers. Or at least the, the the land the land ones. They and then they went to anyway, there is a there is a fossil record of there is a fossil record of what we call dinosaurs. No doubt they existed.
0: As you get the next question, I'll give it to Bob. What are your thoughts?
1: I think the Bible is clear about the, the world before the flood.
0: It was so very much different. There's exactly so again it's i want to just say though that question i want to change it to not science but the naturalist worldview because that's the real issue the issue isn't science there have been christian scientists we're the ones who founded the scientific revolution because we were searching for god it's not science it is the worldview behind it that is the issue And, and just like bob
1: said before the flood i mean things were different did did any of you, when running around these hills uh, here as young, said, did you ever find fossils up on these ridges? And, and anybody that's been on these hills has. Did you ever ask yourself how in the world did a fossil get on top of in our zone here, where fifteen, sixteen, hundred, two thousand foot elevation above sea level? How did them fossils get there? Oh, well, I know, but. I just don't know if anybody else pondered that question. Here's here's an easy one, Pastor Sean. Why
0: do you preach the way you do? An easy one, huh? That's not as easy as people think. Um, All right. As everyone knows, um, you've heard me preach. I do go verse by verse through the Bible. There's a few reasons for that. The first is it forces me to have to preach on everything. Um, even things that I may not be comfortable preaching on, let's say divorce, sexual immorality, things like that, or when it comes to societal things, homosexuality, things like that, Um, it also forces you to have to consider it too. (laughs) Also, another thing is that I've noticed in my generation especially we're not very biblically literate. Um, And what I mean by that is that we've kind of done a thing where we take verses out of context and then blow it up so that they're – They don't mean what they originally mean anymore. So the only way to really remedy that is to make sure that we understand the scriptures in context. And once we understand them in context, it'll help us grow more. And it'll also um, teach us biblical theology, how we know God and who he is. Um, So that's why I do that. I do that because I want all of us to learn together what it is that the Bible's teaching and then see how we can get applications out of that rather than putting our own applications into it cuz that's a danger and there's been many people who do that you see the prosperity gospel that's that's people who do that they take their what they want to believe put it into the text and then say aha now i can believe it well that's not how we're called to do we're supposed to read the text and then believe it <laughs> rather than try and find ways to justify ourselves
1: What is a challenge, or what are some challenges, that face the church today?
0: (sighs) Um, Well, just that one that we talked about, the Bible. Um, Not being biblically literate is one thing, especially for my generation. Um, We have to know our Bibles. Uh, Another thing that I've seen in the last... 50 to 100 years is that we haven't been very good in philosophy or theology Um, as a church we've we've kind of stopped educating in a way and what I mean by that is and this is I don't know how it happened or I don't really blame anyone for it but it's just that we've kind of left education to the schools we've left education to um, the public sphere instead of realizing that you know as the church we should be educating as well Um, and so when I was a youth director at Zion, for example, you know, they, they would tell me, all the youth, you know, they grew up in the church and for 15 years they just heard the same stories over and over again Noah's Ark, David and Goliath. Um, you know, yeah, they're wonderful stories and, and, you know, we're told to remember them and to keep them into consideration. But if that's all you're hearing for 15 years, you're not going to find much growth. And then when you leave the church or you go to school, you're not going to be able to defend yourself or your beliefs and what you've been taught unless you've been trained to defend yourself. And so now we've got a generation who has left the church completely because as soon as they get to the universities, they don't know how to defend. They don't know how to believe. They don't know how to, when um, uh, the atheist professor says, no, there's no such thing as God, let me give you reasons for it. They don't know how to say in response, well, no, look at these reasons. And that's a critique on us. We've messed up. What do we do? We start teaching. (laughs) We start teaching our youth. We start teaching each other. We start teaching our grandchildren and our children. We start teaching um, the truth of the gospel. And we start teaching theology and philosophy. And we don't let go. Um, I would say that that's kind of one of the bigger issues that I've seen. I do think, though, that there's hope for that. But it's going to be a long road, essentially. But there are youth that do care. I mean, when, I, when we were doing VBS, for example, we had great conversations with those youth. You know, and some might think, okay, you can't talk about that kind of stuff with youth, philosophy. You can't talk about theology with youth. Yes, you can. They are fully aware. They know. They want to ask the questions. The, one of the better questions I remember telling you guys that I was asked was, what was there before God? That's a philosophical, theological question coming from a 10-year-old. Ten, a How do we respond to that? Well, I say God was the beginning, and from him he is the first cause, and from him all things have come. They have an answer now. But they're thinking about these things, though, is the point. They're thinking about them. And if we're not going to give them the answers, who is? And that's the problem. Um, So I would say that that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we have today, especially. Um, Also in regards, one more thing, to society itself. Is this idea again that we've separated ourselves? We've kind of done a thing where, um uh, how do I put this? Let's say this election has been awful. <laughs> I think we can all say amen. Um, thank you, <laughs> Connie. Uh, but no, it has been, hasn't it? I mean, this election—Who thought this twenty years ago? Heck, I didn't think of it a year ago. And I heard that Donald Trump was no offense—I'm going to say it—when I heard that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were gone, it's going to—they're not going to get far. Our society is deranged, isn't it? <laughs> no offense, but it is. Look at what we got. Um, <laughs> it is. But the question is, then what do Christians do? Do we just submit to what the society is saying? Do we just submit as to the politicians that they're placing in front of us, or do we stand up and say, this is ridiculous? Um, do we stand up and say, no, we're going to stand for morality. We're going to stand for ethics. And you know what? That's where our vote's going to go. That's scary. Many of us have voted Democrat or Republican for our lives. That's a scary thing to consider. What happens when the parties break? What happens when there is no moral choice? So I guess the point is, when it comes to society, a good time that we can stand up and be light and salt is now. Is by standing up and saying, we denounce This. This is not just. This is not righteous. Um, but, again, that's my, my personal opinion. So, remember, we just sang. They'll know we are Christians by our love. I love you guys.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, commenting on our the challenge question relates to what we're doing in Sunday school. The challenge re- is... is uh, The danger or risk that, okay, I'm in church, and I got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and uh, all is good, and just (laughs) kind of coast.
0: Sorry, but no, that's another challenge, though. You know, I talked about theology, I talked about philosophy, and this is, I think we're just going back. Oh, no, that's a current one. The challenge... Is to go back to the Bible, and I said that earlier, but in regards to certain things like belief, like what it means to be a Christian, um, again, the last 100 years have not been kind to the church in in this way, too, is that we've kind of identified with an easy believism, which is that if you just believe, then you're saved, and then no matter what, how you live after that is good. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when you are, when the gospel is proclaimed, you're going to be changed. Because God is transforming you. And so that's a hard thing to remember. It's a hard thing to consider when you, if we were to go out, let's say today, and we were to go out to our town, Westfield, and knock on everyone's door and ask them, have you ever heard about Jesus Christ? How many would say yes? Then the better question, how many would say that, you know, yeah, I I prayed that prayer. How many do you think if we were to go out and ask? How many then would say that they're going to church? How many of them would say that they're actually reading their Bibles? How many of them would say that they are involved with other believers? That's a scary question because they all think that they're saved. Why do they think that they're saved? Because we've been not properly, I think, teaching what it means to be saved. That salvation is not just a consent. It's also complete giving over of everything that you are to Jesus Christ, that he is literally Lord of all. Um, and not many people have been taught that. And so they think that they're saved when really they're going to have a, a sorrowful experience at the end of their life.
2: There was a question on that page
0: that Mike asked. Okay, you bring it up.
1: Yeah. How can we know that we are saved for sure and just don't think that we are? Repeat the question under the microphone.
0: How can we know that we are saved for sure and just don't think that we are? First John. <laughs> first John. Um, that's that. Well, first John. All first John. Cause, and that's what I, what the very last sermon I preached on first John was a few weeks ago. And I, I, we covered three things that John just said over and over and over again. First is correct understanding of God. You cannot have a wrong understanding of God and still be saved. You can't believe in, let's say, um, the Koran and be saved. You can't. It's a wrong understanding of God. So you have to have correct understanding of God. The second is correct lifestyle. You can't just live in whatever lifestyle you want. Um, And that doesn't mean that you're not going to fall into sin. I fall into sin. We all do. We're we're sinners saved by grace, 100%. However, when I say lifestyle, I mean when we take a video recording of your life, is it going to be one where you're just in sin and you don't care? Or are you struggling against sin? Are you giving yourself to God? Are you messing up? Yes, but turning, trying to turn away. That shows our, your lifestyle. Your lifestyle's struggle. It's repentance. There's a very big difference between the person who struggles into a sin and weeps over it, and the person who just doesn't care that they're in sin. And then finally, love—love love for God and love for each other. Those are the three ways that John in First John tells us that we can know that we're saved is by knowing God correctly, living for him in repentance and faith, and finally, love. Um, Because, again, love is is key. And it's not just love for God, but it's also love for each other, which is also a critique on us when we don't come to church and we don't get involved with each other's lives um, and we're not together. Because how can we love when we're not together? It's not possible. So.
1: Since hell has two compartments, are there still souls in both? Or did Jesus on dying descend and take the ones from paradise into heaven?
0: I don't know. But I do, that's my leaning, is that if we're talking about hell as a place of holding and then... Once our bodily resurrections happen and the judgment comes, we'll either be with God in his kingdom forever or we'll be in eternal damnation. I mean, it, it's definitely possible that God went down, he just, Christ descended into hell, and he re- took out those and he preached to those who um, belong to, as what's called, Abraham's bosom. Which is that, that place where those who are good, so to speak, go before, righteous. or righteous, yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of what I would say about that. Is that if yes, if if I had to guess. But I don't know for sure. Sorry. Well, to add to
1: your uncertainty. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what was the destination of eternal souls before Jesus Christ? In other words, when Old Testament saints died, what was the destination of their souls? And I,
0: You, you said it earlier, Sheol, or yeah. Sheol, or Abraham's bosom for some versus okay. not Abraham's bosom for others. Then what did
1: Jesus go three days into, the, into hell for after his
0: work on the cross? I, I, I would have to say he had to go get them, didn't he? Because <laughs> they're down there. <laughs> well, I don't know for sure. I don't know exactly how it looks. I don't know if, let's say now, if we go to Abraham's bosom or if we go... That's what the question would lean toward. Now, I would lean toward we go directly to heaven. That's how I lean. But again, but I can't know for sure. <laughs> so that's why I'm saying I'm, I don't know 100%. But God gives us enough that we can guess. <laughs> Certain things.
1: Certain things we can guess.
0: Jesus said, If
1: you have seen me, you have seen my Father. Does he know everything that God knows?
0: This is a difficult one, um, because he is God. Jesus is God. We've, we've hashed that out you know, at the Council of Constantinople and the con- Council of um, Nicaea. And then the Nicene Creed, you know, I believe in one God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and it goes on to Jesus too. Um, now, when Jesus came in physical form... There's an understanding that he does not know everything as the Father knows. Um, And this is the reason why. When Jesus is talking in Matthew about coming back again, what does he say? I don't know. But my Father knows. Yeah. So he obviously can't know, at least while he is on earth, while he was walking for his 30 years I don't believe that he didn't know everything that the father knew. Now, did he know some things that the father knew? Yeah, 100%. He could know people's hearts. He could know things, um, prophetic things. God could reveal that to him, yes. Now, let's say after his resurrection, does he know everything? It makes sense. Why not? I mean, probably. Again, one of those things I don't know. (laughs) I don't know 100%. But that's because of certain texts. It seems as though Jesus does not know everything while in his ministry years versus after. I don't know if he does or not. He may. He may not. Um, So, yeah. Hold on. Joanne does have a comment or
2: a question. Jesus Jesus said himself. Uh, only the Father knows when the end will be. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And so that's why I lean toward that, that he does, in his earthly ministry, he does not know everything that the Father knows, at least.
1: And I would think, it's my understanding, that is the only topic that Jesus does not know everything that the Father knows. And I don't know if there's any further discussion on that.
0: When he's in the garden and he's praying, can this cup be taken from me? Or, Lord, if it is your will um, that this cup... If, if there is another way. Um, and so there's, there's evidence of his humanity. And here's the thing. you know, In some ways, that can be scary. But in other ways, it's not scary at all. Because that means he relates to us 100%. He's been in situations the way that we are. When we don't know, and we're not 100% sure. And we're saying, Father, if this is your will, I'll accept it. But... You know, and so Christ understands, and that's why in Hebrews we have someone who is an intercessor who has been there before. And it's good for for us that he has been there before, because otherwise, um, I don't know, we would probably be without much hope. He said if. Yeah. If. Yep. Well, exactly, though. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so...
1: And I think this will be our concluding question, unless something else comes forward. Does God answer prayers of the unsaved?
0: I don't know. That's an interesting one. Because um, in some ways, we, we've talked about this before, about God's love. And that he does love all of his creatures the same, as because they're all masterpieces, and humans especially are masterpieces. But we also learn in 1 John, at the end of the chapter, um, the end of the book, that those who are in Christ can know that their requests have been answered. So maybe that's the thing. Maybe as Christians, we can know that our requests are going to be answered according to the will of God because we are in Christ and we are in God, whereas those who are not in Christ do not have that knowledge. They don't have that ability to believe that in the end... Their prayers will be answered. Um, now, can God answer their prayers? Yeah, I think so. Does that mean though that they are going to be saved or that they are saved? No, it just means that God is a merciful God. That um, that He does. I mean, I think in Nineveh. You know, Nineveh was not Jewish. They were not Israelites. They were a completely different ethnicity. They're a completely different nation. But God saves them. And at the end of the book, Jonah's pleading and wondering and saying, God, why would you even make me do this? Why, why are you saving these heathens? And God says in response, because there are this many who do not, can't even tell they're right from their left, and there's cattle. Cattle? God cares more about cattle than we do even about people at times. And that's a critique. (laughs) That's a critique against Jonah. And that can be a critique against us too, not to necessarily not eat animals or something. But um, a critique against us to understand that God's love is very vast and we cannot even begin to comprehend it. Well, we can begin to comprehend it, but not fathomably, uh, fully at all. Um, And so that's why I would say, yes, God can hear the prayers of those who he may answer the prayers of those. It's uh, he's God. He can kind of in a way do what he wants in his will. So Yeah, I don't have anything to add. Is there
1: any other question or comment about that? Okay, I think that'll be our last question. One question. Okay, one question. Wait, you got to talk into this. God knows you in the womb. What about people who don't know God? ISIS, Hitler, question marks. God knows you in the womb as far as your identity. Yeah, he knows everyone. What about people who don't know God? The bad guys, I guess.
0: There's a moment in Romans 9 when Paul says in a rather I-don't-quite-understand-it way <laughs> that Paul can do sometimes, that there are those who are destined for glory and those who are destined for destruction. Um, and, I mean, that gets into a very, very dis- heavy discussion about predestination, things like wow. that. Yeah. <laughs> no, we have not. Um, Mike and I debate that all the time. But, um, all right, so, yeah. God knows us in our wombs. You know, it also says that He plants our steps before us. He guides our way. If He can, gu- if He guides our way, then by definition, He would have to guide the way of everyone else because we encounter everyone else, or at least in some capacity, or at least put it into, um, so that they would follow that particular way. Irrelevant. Point is, is that yes, God does know them. He does know evil. But the question is then. Are they brought up for God's judgment on nations? In Judges, for example, we see a complete pattern over and over again in Judges, where the Israelites would be obedient and it would be peaceful. They'd fall. God would bring another another nation to judge them. And then someone would rise up. Obviously, God used those evil nations to judge his people, to judge the world. He used his own people in the book of Joshua to judge nations. Um, he uses nations in, when it comes to the kingdom of Israel in the north, when he brings Assyria and to conquer them because of their disobedience. He uses Babylon in 586 to conquer Judah. Um, so I would say, yes, God knows us in the womb. And even those who may not know about God, he knows them too. And he does raise up people specifically for judgment purposes. Will they be judged? Yes, because they're evil. But God, the assumption is that God can't use evil to bring about good. But that's not true. Because if God couldn't use evil to bring about good, then we have no hope. And you say, why don't we have any hope? And I would say the greatest wicked thing that we've ever done is nail Jesus Christ to the cross. Out of all the things that we have ever done as a human race, we, we mercilessly nailed Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only person in all of history who could say, I am innocent, and nailed him to a cross. So, obviously, God has to be able to use evil for good. Because if he can't, then even that the greatest wicked act that has ever happened in all of humanity... Um, if that's not used by God, then we don't even have redemption. So I think when we put that into perspective, when we bring Jesus in and what he went through and realize that God used even that darkness to make it into something greater, why shouldn't we assume that he won't use ISIS or he won't use even the darkness of Hitler to bring about glory, whether it's through punishment or judgment? We, we, but that's the problem too. We're finite. Um. One of the greatest problems that we have in society and philosophy is that we can't know what's going to happen 20 years from now. Um, We have no idea what choice we make today will affect the future. We don't know. So it's with that that we can only be faithful to God and trust in him. Um, And so, yeah, God knows him. He knows about him. But he will use even evil for his glory and that kind of in a way challenges you doesn't it what will you be used for will you be used to glorify god in your life in righteousness and love and peace and mercy or will he be will you be used as an act of judgment and one other thing reminds me of paul in 1 corinthians when he says do you want me to come with you in a spirit of love or with a stick and back then whenever they would use discipline they literally used discipline on people in in the synagogues god you know he is marvelous in all of his ways he will use whatever means he will for his glory and we as finite beings can trust that god is good because he's shown us that he is good yes on
2: I don't. I, I, there's evil in the world, but I don't believe that God created the evil or expected to use the evil because the, every person has a right to redemption. He, the evil used itself. I mean, God didn't create ISIS so that ISIS could kill all these people because any person that's in ISIS can say, I want to become a Christian, I want to be saved.
0: And there is a truth to that, because, and you're right, but the question is, I guess, is can God use those peoples and their actions for his glory, for judgment, for his purposes? I would say yes. He can use anything, including our free will. Um, And so that's where I would go with that. I I agree with you that, technically speaking, with their own choice, they could, but unless God brings redemption, it's not going to happen. But he will use people for his glory, 100%. So
1: something to come to mind this may or may not be exactly on track but there's t- we, 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 we as humans we want to try to understand God like God why are you doing this 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 or why is this 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 allowed as if we have that we think that we have the ability to know what God knows What we need to know is that we don't know and don't have the capacity to know. And there are times when there's no other explanation for why bad things are allowed to happen other than for the glory of God. And what comes to my mind is Job. And why did all the bad stuff happen to Job? Um, It was just to glorify God. And it was tragic. It was horrible. It was painful. And there's no one here that wants to be in pain. And Job didn't either. But just suffering for the glory of God. We have to learn to suffer well. Maybe there's a lesson for us for Sunday school.
0: Also, let's say I agree with Mike 100% about the glory of God, but that does not give us any cause or justification to glory over ISIS or Hitler. Never. Never. We never do that. We always rise up against evil. That's what we're called to do. But again, God being omnipotent, omniscient, he knows all things, he knows everything, he can do all things according to his will. Um, It's from that perspective that we could say, okay, why is this happening? Well, we we have an answer. God will be glorified in the end, even if we don't see it now. We don't understand. Let's say that Hitler didn't rise. We have no idea what would have happened, do we? We don't know if something worse would have happened. We don't know if something better would have happened. We can't know because, like Mike said, we're finite. So we have to, we can say, look back on history and say, there's a reason for it. We might have not understood it in the time. And as time goes on, we could probably better understand it. That such evil is awful and how we don't repeat that evil. Um, but it does not mean that we ever glory in it. We can never glory in sin. That's not what we're called to do. All right. Um. me well, Let me pray and then we'll sing our final hymn. Sorry, we went over quite a bit. That's I'm going to blame Mike. Just kidding. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your glory. We thank you for this time that we've had together to discuss and to consider, to think. And, Lord, we know that you've redeemed all of us. You've redeemed our souls, but you've also redeemed our bodies. You've also redeemed our minds, Lord, as Paul says in Romans 12. Um, And so it's with this that as we consider all of these questions that we have, as we consider all the darkness around us, and as we kind of wonder, okay, Lord, what is it that you're trying to teach us in this? We ask that you would be faithful to tell us and that we ask you to give us a further trust in you to know that you are a good God. You are, and we know it. And also, Lord, to continue to seek you out according to your will, regardless of all the things around us. And it's with this, Lord, that we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, your beautiful and wonderful Son. Amen.